the book of James. <coughs> the book of James, we're going to be there in a minute. It's going to take me a minute to get there. I pray you'll give this pastor some, uh, some grace and some time. Uh, the sermon series that we're in the middle of is called Saving Faith. Uh, and the goal of this sermon series is to show us from the scriptures that faith means something. It, it, it mean, like, think about that for a minute. Faith means something. Faith is one of these words, right, that is this umbrella type of words that have become uh, so wide, so expansive, that when pressed for definitions, we might stumble or trip over ourselves as we try to grasp for the right words to define what in the world it is we're talking about. What does it mean to have faith? Of course, faith isn't the only word like this. There's other words. Um, take a word like love, so expansive, so massive. If I was to ask you on the street, what does it mean to love? What words would you use? Because you love your tacos from Taco Bell, and you love your wives and your husbands. Is that the same kind of love? You see, the word has become so expansive, so massive, that it becomes hard to, uh, when pressed, to clearly and concisely define our minds to a bit of a stutter step, if you will. Perhaps for the younger people in the room, uh, more socially clued in folks in the room, this, this, this is a problem as well for them. Uh, so old folks, you won't know what I'm saying, but, but young folks, we're like, uh, take a word like based, Young folks know what the word based means? Anybody? Yeah, you older people. I'm, maybe I just context. Uh, young people all left. Uh, words like basic or, or bougie. I got all kinds of this bougie sweater. <laughs> Amen. What does that mean? I have no idea. No idea. But I know it's bougie. It's what I'm told. We, we all kind of know that, that words are grasping at, uh, the essence of what words are grasping at, but might struggle to actually articulate it. Um, this type of ethereal or low visibility into the meaning of words is quite common. As a word becomes more and more popular and more, used more and more widely, used by different groups of people, it naturally becomes less clear, less concise. Let me give you one quick uh, silly illustration, uh, since my mom is in the room and she can attest to this. When I was a child, uh, I would do something wrong. I know, you know, sheep, don't worry, I'm a sinner too. Uh, I would do something wrong. And one of the forms of discipline that my parents would actually do uh, on me is actually maybe sit down and write sentences. Anybody, can I get a witness? Anybody ever had to write sentences for punishment? Yeah, my sister raises her hand. Yeah, some of us, yeah, it's a, it's a generational gap there, I think. Anyways, uh, my, my, I would have to write sentences, massive amounts of sentences. Like one time uh, I wrote, I will not lie after telling a lie. And the idea is that you write it enough, it somehow seeps into you. But I think the opposite thing happens. Uh, as a side note, we would often take, like, my brother and I, we would take, like, three pencils, stack them up, and try to write three sentences at once. You know, you do what you got to do. We're sinners all. Um, but, it, it, but anyway, my, my point in saying that is, like, somewhere around sentence number 7,000 or so. Is that right, Mom? Uh, I'm looking at the words, and I begin to think things like, did I spell lie right? Lie, lie, right? And it sound out every syllable like a first grader learning to read. Lie, is that, is that right? Right, as this happens, the more we use words, the more we stare at things, the, the more we think like, what does this even mean? Last week I said that overwhelmingly one of the definitions which our current culture uses to define uh, faith is this. Uh, it's a willingness to admit uncertainty and in the face of not being 100% sure, still taking a step I said, I got a clicker. I don't know if it works. Bang. Right. So this is, a, this is a definition society will tell us. This is what faith means. A willingness to admit uncertainty and in the face of not being 100% sure, still taking a step. And as I'm not going to preach the whole sermon I did last week because I, I went too long last week. Oh, I didn't start my timer. Good. I got an extra five minutes. Uh, a willingness to admit uncertainty and in the face of not being 100% sure, still taking a step. And now as a pastor who stands completely flat-footed on the word of God as being our sole source of truth and knowledge, this definition cannot work. And here's why. Because it comes from a presupposition of uncertainty. It operates from a worldview that says nothing can be truly known, truly understood. Therefore, you need something like faith to fill in the gaps, to take the next step. In other words, this cultural, cultural definition is simply using a hermeneutic of doubt. It starts from uncertainty and then tries to fill in the gaps with, with faith. But if we look at the scriptures, Hebrew, uh, uh, see, yeah, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, uh, the conviction of things not seen. Right? This is the closest we get to the Bible defining for us what faith actually is, which led us last week to coming to the, this definition. Faith is putting your trust in God. There it is. 
and having confidence that he will fulfill his promises. You see, a biblical understanding of faith does not start from a position and posture of uncertainty. Rather, it starts where the Bible starts. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. Everything else about our lives flows out of that verse. Therefore, faith is believing in what God has said, believing in his promises. But believing in his promises about what, though? Friends, that's the whole point of the Bible. That's the whole point of the Bible. The storyline of the scriptures is that God created a very good world. In that world, in, in that world, he put man and a woman made in his image. And it was the job of the man and the woman to be fruitful, to multiply, to have dominion over the world. And you see, the reason God made them was to carry the glory of God out of the Garden of Eden and into the rest of the world. But if you've been around church for any length of time, how did that go? It didn't go well, right? As a matter of fact, they blew it. Man and woman decided that they knew better than God. They wanted to make themselves like God. And so they broke the commandment of God not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that moment, all of mankind, including you and I, became, as the Bible says, dead to God. Dead to God. We became alienated from him. We became sons of the devil instead of sons of God. And this is problematic, isn't it? You see, the, the mission that was given of carrying God's work, uh, God's glory into the world, the reason for which we become, we were created becomes impossible to actually do. You all remember American Idol? Is that show still on? What year are they in, like 29? Remember when they would, uh, uh, they would have a performer uh, come up on stage, and right before they would start to sing, they would, uh, they would roll a video, a five-minute video, right? Uh, introductory video of this performer. Uh, and the video would include things like a personal testimony of how much this person felt called to sing, how they've been wired to sing in such a fantastic uh, way. It includes footage of when they were pretending to play or sing as a child. I've got video of Marley doing that as a, as a young kid. Uh, uh, pretending to play before a massive audience, but there it's just grandma and grandpa that they're playing before. And then they would switch to that same grandma and grandpa there sitting, uh, and they would be talking about how they always knew little Johnny or little Susie is going to be a great singer, a great performer one day. And so the video fades out, and uh, the lights fade down on American Idol, and there, uh, little Susie, little Johnny stands. The music starts, and they begin to sing. But there's only one problem. They're awful. Absolutely gut-wrenching awful. They can't sing at all. In fact, they can't carry a tune at all. No understanding of pitch or tonality. The only keys that they know are the keys to the car. They're just awful. Now we laugh and we chuckle at this, but this is exactly our state of being. This is exactly what's happened to all of us on the st stage known as life. We were created to be image bearers to the king, to go carry his name into the world, having dominion over it, building businesses and growing families to show how God is our king, how good our king is. But there's only one problem. We can't sing. We're all wired to some way, know that we're supposed to give glory to God, to go forth, have dominion over the world, but we're not quite sure how to do it. We can't do it. We're dead. God told Adam that when he ate of the tree, he would die. And that's exactly what happens in Genesis 3. He died not physically, but spiritually emotionally, relationally, psychologically, he died. And from this, God curses the work of woman. He curses the work of man, but he also cursed the devil. Remember, faith is putting your trust in God and having confidence that he will fulfill his promises. God gives the promise that one day there will come one who will come from the woman to crush the head of the evil one. And from there on out, the rest of the story of the Old Testament, the rest of the Bible is looking for the one who would come and defeat, ultimately, finally, fully, the evil one. Right? You, you see this even if you read Genesis chapter uh, 3 and 4 closely, right? That, uh, that right after God promises this, uh, 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 Adam and Eve have a son, right? And it's, uh, his name is Cain. Anybody ever heard of Cain? But the way the Hebrew text there reads in Genesis chapter 4, it's like with the help of the, with the, with the Lord's help, I've gotten a man, right? The, the, the imagery is that, that as Adam and Eve had Cain, they're wondering like, this is the one. This is the one whom God said would come from woman and crush the head of the evil one. But what happens if you keep reading chapter 4? The opposite happens, right? He kills his brother. So they have another child named Abel. Uh, he dies. 
And so you have one child that's dead, so he can't be the Savior. And you got Cain, who's a murderer, who obviously can't be the Savior. Right? The rest of the story, the Scriptures, is tracing the line. We see that the patriarchs and the prophets and the priests, kings and kingdoms come and go, and none of them seem to be the one who was promised. This is why Matthew, by the way, opens his account of the gospel, the story of Jesus with the genealogy. Uh, he, he wants to show you the reader that from Abraham to David to Joseph, the story has been pointing to this new person on the scene. The angel told Joseph in chapter 1 of Matthew, Joseph, son of David, do not fear or take Mary as your wife. Uh, for, uh, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So you have Matthew who opens up, right, the first page of your New Testament. Matthew's like, hey, remember Abraham? Hey, 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 remember David? Remember all the patriarchs of the Old Testament? All of that was coming to this one climactic moment. One climactic person named Jesus. By the way, this is why the, uh, the, uh, the, the early church decided to put the book of Matthew first in your New Testament. Because all the Old Testament leads up to Matthew chapter 1. Anyways, uh, it says that he will save his people from their sins. This is the one they've been looking for. This is the one they've been waiting on. The whole Old Testament all them lovely saints in the Old Testament were waiting for this one. Remember, faith is putting your trust in God and having confidence that he will fulfill his promises. The Gospels then show that the way that Jesus would save his people from their sins would be through his death on the cross. Right? I preached a few weeks ago that, that Jesus was the only person who ever deserved all the covenantal blessings of the Old Testament. Right? In the Old Testament, there's covenants, right? And if you obey it, you'll get the good of the land, right? You'll get God's protection. You'll get all these things. God, you will be God's people. And if, on the other side, if you disobey, if you break, if you're disobedient, well, then curses would come upon you. And so Jesus shows up on the scene, and he's the only man to ever live who fully deserved all the blessings that the covenant promised to the people of God. And yet, and yet, he took the covenantal curses, so that you and I could take the covenantal blessings. You see, Jesus took our place. This is the story of the gospel. We then, seen, we then looked at Ephesians chapter 2 last week, where we've seen that God the Father, through the work of God the Son, by God the Holy Spirit, takes dead men and women like you and I and makes us alive to God. Finally, finally, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are able to fulfill the reason for which we were created. It's like we've become new people, standing on the stage, finally able to sing. So how does he do it? Ephesians tells us he does it uh, by, by grace, uh, right? So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So he, he, he makes us alive by grace, right? Unmerited favor, but what we looked at last week is uh, he, he does this uh, through a certain way, and that way is uh, through faith, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. You see, Paul is clear uh, that, that we do not save ourselves. Grace comes from God if we do not earn it. No works that we do could ever earn it. Paul rules out in this verse that we somehow clean ourselves up before a holy God. And yet last week we walked through a number of scriptures from the book of Acts where we learned that when the early church preached about the good news of gospel, they did it in a very specific way, right? So, so, so you may be here thinking, right? And I don't know your faith background, a lot of you. Um, my, my sheep I know. But, but some of you may be in the room today and, and when you heard the good news of the gospel, all you was told was believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. But how did the early church preach about the gospel? Well, they preached about it in two ways. They said, believe the gospel, yes, that's true, amen, but also repent of your sins. You see, faith without repentance is dead faith. Faith without repentance is good faith. In other words, what, what, what the, the, the New Testaments tell us is that, that, that prayer, or not prayer, but um, uh, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. So faith and repentance are inextricably 
interwoven together. Repentance means turning around, going the other way. You can't say you believe the good news of Jesus' work on the cross and your life not be changed by it. The scriptures are clear. You can't continue down the path of life that you were already on with all your sins, all your shortcomings, and be unaffected. If you don't have repentance, you don't have saving faith. You merely have a faith that out there, out there, a saving faith, real faith in the, the true Messiah will change you. If a word like repentance isn't part of our daily vocabulary, then we should ask ourselves, am I truly walking with the Lord? And then pray that the Lord would move us to repentance, to show us the areas of our lives where we still need to put to death the old man who lives inside. There, there is, however, another danger to modern Christianity, what we find out uh, in the streets. We, we may get our definition of faith correct. We might even get in, uh, the practice of repentance correct. But what about after that? Let me see if I can paint the picture in your mind by asking you uh, to, to, to examine. I'm going to give you three words, and I want you to just uh, uh, gauge how you feel about these words. Okay, just, just three words, very simple. Just think, how would you feel? What do you, what do you think? What comes to mind when you hear these three words? Are you ready? Is anybody awake out there? Amen. Uh, word number one, how do you feel? What do you think? What comes to mind when you hear the word religion? Think about it. Religion. Or how about this? How do you feel? What, what do you think? What comes to mind when you hear the word spirituality? Finally, how do you feel? What do you think? What comes to mind when you hear the word relationship? If I could take a moment to guess about the kinds of reactions you had to these words, I would feel confident in thinking that your reaction to the word religion is primarily one of negative Negative reaction. Depending on how clued in you are to our modern vocabulary of how words are being used in the streets, when you hear spirituality, your reactions may be somewhat indifferent, somewhat positive perhaps, generally positive. And when you hear the word relationship, I imagine everyone in the room had a nearly positive reaction. You say, well, what, what, what are you doing? Is this some psychotherapy? No, no, no. 11 years ago, Jefferson Bethke uh, posted on his YouTube channel a video called Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. To date, the video has 35 million views. To put that into perspective, it's equivalent to every person in the state of Ohio watching it three times. The video quality was excellent, the different angles, the effects, and here were the opening lines. Uh, I've mentioned this from the poll before. This is, what, this is what Jefferson said. He said, what if I told you Jesus came to abolish religion? What if I told you voting Republican really wasn't his mission? What if I told you Republican doesn't automatically mean you Christian? And just because you call some people blind doesn't automatically give you vision. I mean, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars? Why does it build huge churches but fails to feed the poor? Jefferson then spends the next four minutes and three seconds calling out what he sees as issues within the church. Now, Jefferson has a particular view and definition of what religion it is that he is railing against, a type of religion which seems to only give lip service to the commands of Jesus while ignoring real present physical needs in the world. Unfortunately, though, religion is also one of those words that becomes an umbrella term and grows to mean or define multiple things. Watch this. Because change is slow and words matter. Listen, change is slow and words matter. Any Bible-believing Christian would agree with Jefferson that we should be doers of the word. Amen. Not hearers only. But according to a poll taken by Pew Research Center in 2017, more Americans now, uh, now recognize themselves as being spiritual, but not religious. Spiritual, but not religious. The article goes on to say, some people may see the term spiritual, but not religious as indecisive or devoid of substance. Others embrace it as an accurate way to describe themselves. What is beyond dispute, however, is that the label applies to a growing share of Americans. Overall, between the year 2012 and 2017, those who are spiritual but not religious went from 19% to 27%. The data shows that this type of understanding of ourselves rises, uh, rises across the board. Male and female doesn't matter. Black and white doesn't matter. Republican, Democrat doesn't matter. It's across the board. Uh, Americans today are classifying themselves more as spiritual but not religious. And what's interesting is even in the churches, even in the churches this is true, 
of those who say they're spiritual but not religious, 35% also say that they're Protestant, which is about just as many as those who claim no denominational affiliation. Now, how we got here, this is, this is interesting. Remember, change is slow and words are important. How we got here would take another hour for me to fully unpack. Let me give you the five-second highlight reel and why this is massively important, and then we'll get to our text. We got here in our country today uh, of being primarily concerned with spirituality and relationship over religion through, listen, through a godly desire to see men and women saved and on their way to heaven. But that godly desire was devoid of the local community of faith and deep discipleship. You see, what started with George Whitfield and John Wesley in the cornfields before moving to Charles Finney and on to Billy Graham was a call for men and women to turn from their sins, to repent, to give their hearts to Jesus. Now watch this, because they got last, point, last week's point right, right? Repentance and faith go hand in hand. They, the, the, the evangelists of yesteryear knew this, but what they missed is what we so often miss as well, which is that faith produces a constant and concrete religion. Faith produces a constant and concrete religion. For the most part, we have boiled down Christian religion to something like it's not a relation, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. That's just the general vernacular of our day, how we understand ourselves. But this morning, James has a word for us. This morning, James has a word for us. He's going to remind us that religion rightly understood is a good thing. It's a good thing. The book of James looks a little bit like, a, like the Old Testament book of Proverbs, dressed up in New Testament clothes. Its consistent focus on practical action in the life of faith is reminiscent of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, encouraging God's people to live and act like God's people. The pages of James are filled with direct commands to pursue a life of holiness. He makes no excuses for those who do not measure up. In the mind of, uh, of James, Christians evidence their faith by walking in certain ways and not others. You see, for James, a faith that does not produce real life change is a faith that is dead and worthless. If you're in James chapter 2, say amen. If you need more time, it's been like 12 minutes. You should be there. James chapter 2, but, but right, flip back to James chapter 1, verse 27. James chapter 27, 127. I'm reading from the ESV today. Uh, uh, James chapter 1 verse 27 says this religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world he said so James is trying to get us to see that how we act in the in the real world how we treat other people and especially how we treat those who are most desperate matters it matters I need you to see this this morning, that, that how you live your life matters. James wants you to see this morning that the kind of person you are is directly related to whether or not you understand the gospel. And James does this in three moves. Let me show you, and then we'll, uh, we'll get out. we got some cake over there. It's going to be glorious. Uh, three things that James does here. Uh, he calls us to examine the fruit. Number one, for those of you like... Here's the outline. Examining the fruit. Number two, he says uh, it's more than simple belief. It's more than simple belief. Uh, and number three, he gives an illustration with a patriarch and a prostitute. So go with me to chapter two, uh, James chapter two. Faith produces a constant and concrete religion, which James says is the proof of the fact that the faith is a saving faith. Look at verse 14 with me in James chapter two, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So here James begins by asking the question that each of us should ask, which is, uh, how good is this? Is this faith good? How good? Does it work? What I love about James' directness is that it flies in the face of so much of what claims to be Christianity today. You see, we've been inundated that Jesus can get you to heaven when you die, and we miss the grittiness of the world around us. We've truncated life and the whole Christian life of merely get saved and go to heaven when you die. We miss the real hurt. 
We miss the real needs around us. We end up with a faith that only exists at 30,000 feet and never touches down in the grass of our lives. In other words, friends, if you've experienced Christianity that has nothing to say to how you live your life at 2 p.m. on Tuesday afternoon, then perhaps you haven't experienced the real thing. That's James' point. That's what he's saying. So he asks the question straight up, can your faith actually save Notice how he asked the question, which no doubt the early church would have seen all around them. Look at verse 15. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? He says, this is a needy person. It's a hypothetical, perhaps, most likely a real-life situation that James has in mind here. Lacking basic essentials like clothes and food. What we know about the early church from the book of Acts is that these kinds of things were were regularly solved for in the church because of the faith they had. It says this in Acts chapter 4, verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to each as any had need. So so James is addressing in his letter perhaps those who said, oh, yeah, 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 Jesus, we we down with Jesus. Love, Love us some Jesus but then refuse to care for the poor and needy around them. I wonder, is that, is that a problem in our day? Do you know of so-called Christians who claim to follow the king and yet constantly avert their eyes from a, the needy around them? Friends, is, is that you? Now, I realize the days in which we live. I realize we have a unique situational problem. I, like you, live in the real world. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, Pastor, are you saying... Are you saying we need to constantly stop at every corner that there's a beggar at and give them money? Is that, is that what you're saying, Pastor? To which I would answer, pastorally, maybe. Maybe. Perhaps the Lord has gifted you with resources of abundance to where he, he does indeed expect you to help in this type of way. But what James is after is something much deeper than this. Notice with me again in these verses. In verse 15, there exists the need. And in verse 16, two important things happen. The first is uh, the, the words that are spoken by the so-called follower of Christ. He says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and feel. That's the first part. The second part is that they, they, they then give nothing to actually bring about this kind of uh, res- resolution to the need in their life. Now, I don't think God is calling each and every one of us to stop every time we see a homeless person on the street and just give them cash. But he does want us to change the way we see them. He does want us to change the way we see them. He does want us to change the way we interact with them. You see, the man James is talking about here offers nothing. Nothing to his brother, nothing to his sister. Well, I'll take that back. He does offer, uh, he, he offers words without wisdom. In other words, he offers wishful thinking. The power of positive thinking or good vibes or positive manifestations offers nothing in the real world of actual needs. And James is calling those who claim to have faith to examine themselves. Notice that's what he's saying. He's saying, he's using this as a litmus test, if you will. Measure yourself. Examine yourself. This is the theme of the whole book, right? Chapter 1 is he's comparing a man who looks in the mirror and then walks away unchanged, forgets what he looks like. You see, James knows deep down that in the life of a believer, something happened at the moment of salvation. Something happened when you had saving faith that something uh, inextricably changed within you and you say, well, where, where, where did he get that kind of understanding? No doubt he learned it from Jesus himself who says in John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. He goes on to say, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I commanded you so that you will love one another. You see, Jesus and James are saying the same thing here. Essentially, that saving faith produces good works. It's inevitable. For the life of a believer, it's inevitable. Faith produces a constant and concrete religion which can be examined. And since such a faith can be examined, that means that faith produces a constant and concrete religion that is more than simple belief. Point number two, it's more than simple belief. You see, simply believing the gospel is an act of the mind and of the will. 
there's only one problem with that is uh, you can't know what I'm thinking. No idea what I'm thinking right now. My, Julie took the kids to a museum this past week, uh, and, and one of the things we were talking debriefing afterwards, and she says, man, I just, I want to take them when they're older. I want to take them when they're older. They'll, they'll get so much more out of it. What's, what's she saying? What she's saying is that, like, she can go and she say, like, kids, look at this painting. Isn't this painting beautiful? My kids look at it fat, flat face and be like, this is dumb. This is dumb, Mom. Why are we here? Right? This, 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 is what, this is what the gospel does to us. Right? Uh, the gospel is that, that we see the work of Jesus. We see what Christ has done on the cross, taking our place. Uh, and we see this as breathtakingly beautiful. It's believing in faith that what Jesus has done on the cross is gloriously good for us. That he has paid for our sins. And all of that, all of that is invisible. It happens within the heart. You can't see that. You don't know that. And so James wants to address this in the next verse. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? You see, James begins to, uh, he kind of just knows he kind of knows what the, the people are going to react with. That's why he, he says this hypothetical objector here. He says, someone, one of y'all will say, no doubt, you have faith and I have works. And so, so James calls him, show me. Prove it. Show me your faith. You see, because the person who says, well, I, I, I do think the picture is beautiful but never actually it calls other people into it. Look how beautiful this is. Isn't this glorious? Look at that painting. Isn't it beautiful? Do they truly love it? How do you know? You see, his point is that it's impossible to prove your faith apart from works. I need to restate what the scriptures overwhelmingly scream because some of my more Protestant brothers in here are probably on the edge of their seats ready to throw me out this pulpit. Which is that, that we are not saved by works. The whole first three chapters of the book of Romans takes as its aim to show that it is not our works, but the works of Jesus, which justifies us in the presence of Almighty God. Paul, in his letter to the church at Galatia, which was dealing with that exact issue, said this, We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. But through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This, what this means then is if we, if we rightly understand and are able to put the whole pieces together of the scriptures, what this means is that James is arguing uh, for here is not, do you love the painting? Stay with me. But rather, how can we really know if we love the painting? How can... Anyone? How can you? Perhaps he's asking you pointedly here today, how do you know if you truly love the painting? How do you truly know if you've actually believed the good news of Jesus Christ? He goes on, he talks about a demon, believes the simple truth that God is one, and that, that, that the demon even shudders. So what's James' point in this? His point is that, that, that what makes us different from demons is love. Is love. You see, 1 John is helpful here. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 says this. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out. Listen, listen. You hear this language? We know that we have passed. Right? This is, this is John talking. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know that, John? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that a murderer has no eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You see the difference between uh, what James is getting after here? He says, even the demons believe God is one. They tremble. What's the difference then, James? The difference is that a saving faith will always play itself out. Listen, will always play itself out in love for one another, always. 
Do you realize how big of a deal this is? Jesus summed up the commandment, all the commandment of God in two ways. Love God, love one another. And the gospel makes it possible to do both. Like oftentimes we've so truncated the gospel that we think it's just about our right standing with God. Forgiven of our sins. Praise God, that's gloriously true. But it also did something on this side. It actually enables us to love one another. It's a beautiful thing about the gospel. It's not just in belief in who God is and what God has done, but it's also the Holy Spirit doing open heart surgery on us. Faith produces a constant and concrete religion that is more than simple belief. James then moves on to show that from the greatest to the least, this kind of faith produces a constant and concrete religion by giving two examples of this kind of faith. He gives us the the example of a patriarch and a prostitute. Let's look at these. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and by faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see the person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You see, the first example that James puts before you, the reader here, is this patriarch Abraham. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Abraham at a deep level, what you'll you'll notice here is that uh, 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 James actually reaches to two places in the story of Genesis to pull his text. Two places. He's quoting two different parts of the story of Abraham. The part where James is talking about Abraham offering up his son Isaac comes from Genesis chapter 22. You know the story. He had been promised to become the father of many nations through one son, Isaac, whom he loved. And then God asked him to offer Isaac up as a sacrifice. The story, of course, goes that Abraham raised the knife to slay his only son, whom he loved, and at that exact moment that he was about to bring it down, God told him to stop and instead provided a ram for the sacrifice. This, by the way, uh, this is just help you in understanding and reading the Old Testament. This was a foreshadow of another story where a father would offer up his only son, the, the son whom he loved. Only in the future story, the son would not be spared. But then James quotes verse 23. Uh, uh, James quote in verse 23 that, that, that this has somehow fulfilled the scripture, right? This has fulfilled the scripture that Abraham believed God. That scripture comes from Genesis chapter 15. I'm not sure how, how, how familiar you are with the timeline of Genesis. From Genesis chapter 15 to Genesis chapter 22 existed 30 years. 30 years. In Genesis chapter 15, this is where uh, James pulls this text. He said, And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Right? Genesis chapter 15, this is the, 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 the covenantal promise of God to Abram. And then in verse 6 of that same chapter, it says, He believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, all of that, my point in pointing this out to you is that James connects these two scriptures together. Where Abraham believes God and it's counted to him as righteousness, and then James says that his faith was active and then completed by his works. In other words, this patriarch has proved himself, proved to himself, proved to the world, and proved to God that he does truly believe in God's promises. That's true faith. Right? 30 years. It says he believed God and it was counted to him righteousness. 30 years later, God calls him up and says, Was it true? Was it true faith? Was it saving faith? And so that's what, that's the, and so and James says, of course it is, right? This is, this is what it is. But perhaps the people that James was writing to would object and say, of course, of course, James, you, you went to Abraham, the father of our faith, the father of our nation. Uh, of course he was faithful. That's why he's Abraham. That's what made him great. That's what makes him so unlike us. So understand that people may object to to this example of faith. He he reaches not for a patriarch, but for a prostitute. Look at verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers, sent them out by another way? This story is about Rahab the prostitute from Joshua chapter 2 who took in the spies, uh, spying out the land. Uh, She believed God. She hid the spies lied about it, we can talk about that in ethics class, lied about it and sends them out of the city in a different way. 
Now, why would James use her in his, as an example? Why would, why would, of all the characters, of all the cats in the Old Testament, why Rahab? Why hold her up as this great model and picture of what faith on the ground looks like? You see, what James is trying to tell the people, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter your background. Saving faith in the life of a believer looks the same for a patriarch as it does for a prostitute. And that's good news because I imagine we all come from somewhere along that spectrum. One of the beautiful things about the gospel of Jesus is that it calls all of us into this. The Christian religion beckons all who are hurting, all who have sinned. Whether you think of yourself as the worst sinner or perhaps you think of yourself as a pretty good person, the gospel beckons you, come. Repent of your sins. Believe the good news of the gospel. The gospel beckons you come. It's like a decree from the king that goes into the poorest village of the king's enemies. Listen, not the king's citizens. It's a messenger who goes into the king's enemies' cities and says, I know what you have done, and I'm forgiving you. Free forgiveness. There's Ernest Hemingway once wrote a story uh, called The Capital of the World. Some of you might know this. And then he told the, father, the story of a father and his teenage son who were estranged from one another. The son's name was Paco. He had wronged his father. As a result, and in his shame, he had run away from home. In the story, the father searched all over Spain for Paco, but still could not find the boy. Finally, in the city of Madrid, in a last desperate attempt to find his son, his only son, the son whom he loved, the father placed an ad in the daily newspaper. And the ad read this, Paco. Meet me at the Hotel Montana, noon, Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. The father in Hemingway's story prayed that the boy would see the ad. And then maybe, just, just maybe, he would come to the Hotel Montana. On Tuesday at noon, the father arrived at the hotel. When he did, he could not believe his eyes. An entire squadron of police officers had been called out in an attempt to keep order among 800 young boys. You see, it turned out that each one of them was named Paco. Each one of them had come to meet his respective father and find forgiveness in front of the Hotel Montana. 800 boys named Paco read the ad in the newspaper and had hoped it was for them. 800 Pacos had come to receive the forgiveness they so desperately desired. You see, saving faith offers you and I free forgiveness. And then it works out in our lives in obedience to Jesus Christ, regardless of whether you're a prostitute or a patriarch. So James teaches us that faith produces a constant and concrete religion. And that it's okay to actually think about your faith in real terms, tangible terms. Listen, uh, uh, do away with the society's uh, thing that religion is, or your Christianity is just merely what you believe in your head and at your home. That's ridiculous. Any short survey of the history of the world will show you how influential Christianity has actually been. Look at verse 26. Notice how James ends the section here. Verse 26, he ends with this. He says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. In our day and age, we have so separated Christianity from the material and the physical world. And we only think of it in terms of spirituality, relationship. And not in terms of concreteness, not in terms of constantness, not in terms of uh, actually affecting change in the real world. But friends, it's not always been this way. Can I encourage you for a minute in your walk with Jesus this, minute, this, this morning? Is it okay if I do that? Amen. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to go for the two people that said I could. I'm going to do it. Faith produces a constant and concrete religion in a concrete way like science. Contrary to the relatively recent modern invention of the warfare between God and science, Bible believers who believed in a God who created orderly, rational universe, as well as working miracles on rare occasions for special purposes, were the leading shapers of modern science. Indeed, remove them, and we have virtually nothing left. These pillars include people like Isaac Newton, Johannes Kepler, Nicholas Copernicus, Galilea Galilei, Robert Boyle, Michael Faraday, James Clark Maxwell, William Henry Perkin, George Stokes, William Thompson, and J.J. Thompson. There's a noted physicist, Paul Davis, makes this clear. Science began as an outgrowth of theology. And all scientists, whether atheists or theists, accept an essentially theological worldview. Listen, I love that. 
All modern science is stealing from Christianity right now. I don't know if you know that. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. Let me give you another one. Faith produces a constant and concrete religion uh, in a concrete way like healthcare. The idea of the hospital grew out of the Christian emphasis on charity, especially towards the sick. In the days of Jesus, hospitals and physical treatment centers were reserved strictly for slaves, Roman gladiators, soldiers, and the rich. It was through the compassion, listen, through the compassion of Jesus' followers that the average working class citizen started receiving help. It was decreed beginning in the fourth century that for every church built, a corresponding hospital had to be built next to it. Today, many of the hospitals we visit are Baptist, Presbyterian, or Catholic in their origin. Think about what the world would be like without immediate hospital care. You see, these are the kind of terms I'm talking about when we think about our faith in concrete and constant ways. Listen, I'll give you another one. Faith produces a constant and concrete religion, a concrete way like caring for orphans. Throughout history, it's always been very common for children to be thrown away or drowned if not wanted. And in some cases, even sold for child sacrifice to be burned on an altar. The, the early Christians were the first, listen, the early Christians were the first ones to get the babies from the dumpsters and adopt them, as well as the first ones to open up adoption centers for the children that were being rejected from their homes. The early Christians recognized that all people are made in God's image and deserve a chance at life. Faith produces a constant and concrete religion, a concrete way like in sex. Adultery and prostitution have always been prevalent. Men used to, uh, and in some cases still do, share their women like property. In ancient times, they often visited temple prostitutes as part of their weekly routine. But it was Jesus who revolutionized the most sacred way of viewing sex. Even glancing at a woman lustfully, he says, is adultery in the heart. It was Jesus' influence on sexual morality that brought dignity and honor to the marriage institution. Think about it. Pastors always are the ones who perform marriages. And it's common, whether Christian marriage or not, that the Bible verses uh, shower the entire ceremony. The level of commitment for marriage is highest uh, because what God has joined together, let no man separate. You see how we've been hoodwinked into thinking that our religion is merely something that lives in our heads or merely just a relationship with some uh, unseen being and have no practicality in our lives? It's utterly ridiculous. Uh, let me, I'll, I'll keep going, amen? Uh, faith produces a constant and concrete religion, a concrete way like education. Kindergarten originated from a Christian man named Frederick Frobel. Graded levels of education, like first, second, third grade, came from Johann Sturm, who was also a Christian, who thought that advancing to the next level would be a reward for his students. It was Christian men and women who pioneered formal education systems for the blind and deaf. Sunday school originated from Christians that wanted common poor people to have an education. So a man named Robert Rakes decided to start teaching them on Sundays before church. Most colleges, listen, most colleges and universities in America that are well-known today began as Christian schools, including Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Columbia. Men and women being formally educated in the same setting uh, was also mostly a Christian innovation. Before this, it was uh, boys with boys and girls. It was only boys who got education. So there you ladies go. Christianity is helping you out. Faith produces a constant and concrete religion, uh, a concrete way like eradicating slavery. Listen, I, I, I'm the first to, uh, to, to take the heat from secular society when they say, well, isn't Christianity, didn't, like, wasn't, didn't churches adopt slavery? Like, wasn't that a mark? Absolutely, those people are idiots. It's as clear as that. Absolutely. Like, if they understood the scriptures properly, now they were, they were men and women of their times, that doesn't excuse them. Listen, it was the Christian doctrine of understanding men and women as being equal before God that actually led to the eradication of slavery. True followers uh, of Christ called abolitionists eventually paved the way for the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863 that freed all black slaves. In 1957, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. helped found the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which assumed a posture of Christian nonviolence to promote its objectives. Today, modern slavery still exists, but Christian organizations like A21 and End It Movement are the forerunners of the abolition of modern sex trafficking and other forms of slavery. Christians have always viewed every human being as equal, whether slave or free. 
Listen, friends, the, the point of this message in, in its entirety is summed up in this. If you walk away, you forget everything else. We're going to enjoy some food, enjoy some cake. But if, if, I, if I could put into your soul, into the gut of your being, it would be this, that, that saving faith is a working faith. It produces constant and concrete religion, and that's okay. Don't be scared of that word. James uses it, rightly understood and rightly defined. The world will continue to tell you to keep your religion at home. But friends, we must not do this. We must be a doer of the word, walking in grace, and setting the world ablaze for the glory of our great King and God, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you humbly, boldly, as the scriptures tell us. Lord, so many of us have been thinking that Christianity is just here to help us get to heaven. But Father, Lord, it's so much more. Lord, you've completely changed us from the inside out. You've given us a new heart, a new spirit. You've called us to kill sin that remains in our members. And you've called us to love one another. Father, may we examine ourselves this morning. Do we have that kind of faith? Do we have a faith that produces? Father, have we merely been bought into the belief that, well, I believe in God, therefore I'm okay. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to these things through the word. That Christianity affects all aspects of our lives, all of life for all of Christ, Father. That our religion would actually come out of the stratosphere of ideas and philosophies and touch down in the real world where we live and move and have our being and change us. Father, whether we're We've come from backgrounds of, of gross sins, Father. Wherever pit you pulled us out of, Father, Lord, it looks the same. Faith looks the same in all of our lives. So, Father, encourage us in it. Have us keep moving. Now is just our time to push back the darkness that exists around us. So would you give us this kind of faith? Give us the kind of faith that defies kings and emperors, that stands upon the word of God until you call us home. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brother Philip.